So uh, we're in Mark. We're in the first chapter of Mark. Um, the verses today technically are 9 through 11, but I, I was going to read uh, the first 11 verses just to make sure we know where we're at. Um, it, it's tempting sometimes just to get, get going, but uh, we need to know the lay of the land, I think, before we head out. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Amen. Don't worry, as we go here, I'm not going to read the entire book of Mark just to catch up to the verses I'm reading. (laughs) But we're still in the prologue. We're still in the prologue. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence here. We know that you have drawn near to us, and we pray, Father, that through your word we would draw near to you. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this message. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort us and convict each of us exactly the way that we need. You are a mighty, mighty God, and we are your children. And we are here now because we, we delight in your word, we delight in you, and we pray, Lord, that you would work in us and through us and on us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the earlier references to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and Malachi chap, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, as they were quoted, suggest that John himself is the messenger from prophecy. This is the messenger that we have all been waiting for. And yet both of those passages indicate that the messenger prepares the way for God's coming into the world. And then abruptly, without introduction, without backstory, without explanation, is this new character. Jesus says, in those days, Jesus appears. So wait, I'm confused. Is this another prophet who's coming? Is this the God coming? It's it's very confusing. And Mark doesn't explain anything. He just just rolls with the story. The the gospel of Mark is full of rhetorical questions. As you see throughout it, who who is this? Wait, what does this have to do with what just just happened? And what what is Jesus' role in all of this? As you go on throughout the gospel, that's a common question. Who is this man? Who is this guy? Where did he come from? What is he doing? Where is he going? What does this have to do with what we've all been waiting for? Mark expects his audience to decide what to do with what he sees and hears, with, with what the reader sees and hears. That's what Mark wants. He wants you to read it, and he wants you to deal with what he says. Mark has highlighted a profound set of hopes and expectations and promises from Israel's past and has set them next to the ministry of John the Baptist and the appearance of this Jesus. Now, on the evidence of Mark 
chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, it's possible to define the broad outlines of Mark's meaning. And yet we need to remember that Mark does not explicitly tell us what it means. He shows us the material and invites us to decide for ourselves. So let us this morning now turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and look at what it says and decide for ourselves what it means. What is Mark getting at here by suddenly presenting this character of Jesus? Now, I'm going to start in verse 8. I'm going to read these again. I have baptized you with water, says John, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. By skillfully placing verses 8 and 9 next to one another, Mark portrays the enormous contrast between the baptism of the Lord, the one he will perform, and the one that he submits to. Right? The mighty one who's coming to baptize you with the Spirit is first going to be baptized in the Jordan. Central to verse 8 is the giver of the Spirit, actively creating the people of God. In verse 9, the same giver is the lowly penitent, passively receiving the sign of repentance on behalf of God's people. Why does the giver of the Spirit need the baptism of repentance? That seems very incongruous to everything that we understand from the Old Testament. Submitting to John's baptism means that Jesus acknowledges the judgment of God upon all of Israel. At the same time, his baptism signifies that his mission will be to endure the judgment of God. Jesus comes to John as the true Israelite whose repentance is perfect. He, he follows the law so well, he, he understands the condition of Israel so well, that even though he is sinless, he, he understands the state that they're in. He's, he's uh, aligning himself with all of the people who need repentance, who need to turn away from the world to the living God. Now, the book of Hosea, which is quoted back in verse 2, pointed forward to a time when God would renew Israel's sonship in the wilderness. That's what the whole book is about. One day, God will come and renew Israel in their sonship. I will restore them to the relationship that they had with me previously. I, I will do it, and I will do it in the wilderness. John's appearance in the wilderness, his call to repentance, his baptism, signified that the time has come. God will execute a decisive judgment from which a re recreated Israel will emerge. Jesus acknowledges this conviction, which has roots in the prophetic tradition. He comes to John as one willing to assume the brunt of this judgment. The bearing of its burden constitutes his mission. This is what Jesus is about. What they need is... Um, Renewal, what they need is to become again the sons of God. What they need is, is someone to bear the wrath of God. And Jesus says, I am the one who will do it. Now, many, many had, went, had gone out to John. But only Jesus understood that a return to the wilderness involved the determination to live under the judgment of God. Right? All along, what do we see? Jesus is teaching that Israel needs to turn from their sins back to God. And, and they are not only confused by this, they, are, they hate him for telling of them this. He alone understands what is really required of the people of God in order to return and, and to receive the promises of God. He alone understands it. Christian baptism is not identical to John's baptism. Although it retains the symbolism of repentance and purification, it is performed in the name of the triune God. John doesn't baptize anybody in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
It symbolizes our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what our baptism signifies. The one that John has is just a, is, is a ritualistic washing, recognizing their unclean, uncleanliness. John's baptism is a testimony that Israel, all of Israel, right? He's, he's calling out to Israel, the people who are already God's people. He's calling them out to the wilderness to be baptized, to be washed. The startling emphasis of verse 9 is that the bestower of the baptism of the Spirit humbles himself to receive the baptism of repentance. Jesus heeds John's call to the wilderness as the place where Israel's sonship of God must be and will be renewed in him, in him. Jesus coming from Galilee is in stark contrast to those coming from Judea and Jerusalem in verse 5. Verse 5 and verse 9 are almost um, identical in their verbiage. In verse 5, Judea and Jerusalem are in view, the central province and the holy city. In verse 9, Nazareth of Galilee is in view, an unpromising region associated with disinterest with the law. If you look at them, verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Then verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So you have two different people groups coming from two different locations, for this one baptism, and that is extraordinarily significant. Galilee of the Gentiles is a region that had a questionable reputation, more than a questionable reputation. As Peter Lightheart wrote, the area known as Galilee was part of the land conquered under the leadership of Joshua and was given to the tribes of Zebulun and Nephtali. In the 8th century BC, the land was invaded by Assyrians. Many of the inhabitants were taken into exile, and the region was repopulated with Gentiles. Despite an attempt in the 2nd century BC to forcibly circumcise and convert the populace, it remained a religiously and ethnically mixed province. It was here that Jesus chose to concentrate at the beginning of his public ministry. He starts on the outside. He starts in a region that is not exactly known for its holiness and godliness and cleanliness. See, proximity to Jerusalem was extremely important in those days since the law of Moses demanded that all Israelites gather at the central sanctuary three times a year for um, Passover, for Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So the farther you live away from Jerusalem, the unholier you are because it's harder to make it to the big show. The more often you get out there and get seen at the big show, obviously the holier you are. This was the culture at the time. Those people are so far away, they never come to the temple. They clearly don't love God. (laughs) They never make the trip. True faithfulness to God and obedience to God come from the unlikeliest places, doesn't it? God is moving and at work in the unlikeliest of places. No one in their right mind in Israel would have thought, you know where God is going to start? Galilee. That's definitely where it's at. That's where all the really religious people live. That's where all the people who have it put together. If we're going to have a king rise up at this point, he's definitely going to come from Galilee, said no one ever. From the very beginning of Israel's history in the land of Canaan, the Israelites who settled west of the Jordan had been suspicious of the faithfulness of their brothers who lived out on the frontier on the other side of the river. There's a story about this where right when they settled the land, the people on the west, from the west of the Jordan immediately, it doesn't take long at all, are accusing them of, of, of straying from God. So even at the very beginning of the Old Testament, as soon as there's this river that separates them, they, they consider a real separation of holiness. And it's perceived in their minds. 
Now, by the time Jesus comes around, there is actually a real difference because the land is uh, that we're talking about east of the Jordan is a very mixed bunch, a very mixed bunch. Human nature being what it is, it would have been far easier for an Israelite in Nazareth to either neglect or else be legitimately prevented from attending some of the festivals, right? It's a long way to go. Differences in geography represented differences in perceived piety, right? There are certain neighborhoods that are just holier than other neighborhoods. Nazareth did not have a good reputation for faithfulness to the law of Moses. Remember the disciple Philip, what did he say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's not shocked that he's asking, can anything, can anything good come out of that place? It is so bad. And there are neighborhoods like this, right? Right? I, I, I remember even when I was in high school, I, was, I, I met someone who got a full-ride scholarship in, from South Seattle, and I thought, South Seattle? Did people even graduate from high school down there? I didn't. Right? I went to Mercer Island, and it explains a lot. Now, this, is a, this, this whole thing is amazing. Remember, John is the son of a priest, but is he in the temple doing the work of a priest? No, he is on the outside, as far out as you can get, doing the, this work that is unclear exactly how it fits in, in the ritualistic system of Israel. And then in the middle of this wilderness, where you've got John doing his thing, Jesus appears from even further afield. Even John, though, doesn't know exactly how far Jesus has come from. God himself is exiled from Israel. That was the point that I made in the very first sermon introducing this book. God himself is exiled. Israel thinks that getting Rome out of the land will restore it, but what it needs is a return of God himself to cleanse it. It's time for God to come, part the River Jordan, and re-enter the land to recreate the land, the people of God, and the world itself. Just as the book of Acts records the transfer of the kingdom from unbelieving Jews to God-fearing Gentiles, so the Gospels record the kingdom taken from Jerusalem and given to those on the outskirts the outsiders and the outcasts, geographically, politically, and religiously. The land and temple are going to be cleansed and the nations called in, and this is going to be accomplished by people outside of the establishment. There is this uh, moment here in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where Jesus has ascended. It's amazing what the angels say. The angels say this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The followers of Christ by angels are recognized as being Galileans, not Israelites. We actually have a letter from the Roman emperor Julian in AD 360 complaining about the charity of Christians to the pagans. Listen to this. The emperor writes, the impious Galileans, by which he meant the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. (laughs) How dare they? They are so impious. They don't even just take care of their people. They take care of our people. But what does he call them? He calls them Galileans. It was a real irony and challenge to the religiously elite that the Messiah, the son of David, and the apostles were were to come not from the fashionable communities of Jerusalem or from the disciples of the leading rabbis like Paul, nor from the tribe of Judah itself, but from the land of Nephtali and Zebulun. Oof, the red-headed stepchild of Israel. This is not at all what Israel expected. It's never what the world expects. It's never what the world expects. Before we were known as Christians, as 
Those of us associated with the Messiah of Israel, we were called Galileans by angels and emperors, associated with a wilderness region on the edge of the Roman Empire. Now, Mark couldn't have had any idea what he was talking about in a larger sense, but long before the Visigoths and the Franks came down from the north and brought Rome to its knees, another barbarian on the, from the east invaded over the, over the Jordan River, and his name was Jesus. The wild man, the one associated with people who are eating bugs and eating honey, <laughs> wearing camel's hair. Right? That, that's not exactly the barbarian horde you think of that brings Rome to its knees, but that's because Jesus is fighting a different fight. That's because Jesus goes about it in a very different way. Mark's original readers in Rome would have seen, they would have read this verse, and it would have meant so much to them, because their Lord himself, the Lord of heaven and earth, is an outcast just like they are. When they're reading in the catacombs about their Lord, they realize their Lord is a loser like they are. By every human standard, this is somebody who comes from far outside the establishment. Here they are hiding amongst dead people so they can worship Jesus. That's because Jesus defies social respectability. He is making a new world order, and he is doing it with a very different display of power. The kingdom of God is a revolution of cosmic proportions. The last shall be first. The low are lifted up. The high are brought low. Your socioeconomic status does not matter in God's kingdom. Your education or your social respectability do not matter to him at all. It's not externals, as was read for us this morning. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. but I'm just a lowly housewife. I'm just a blue-collar guy. Yes, and once a king and queen in Narnia, always a king and queen in Narnia. Who is this Galilean? What is he here to do? Well, let's continue. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Many had come to the Jordan to be baptized, many. But only with Jesus, in whom true submission to God was perfectly embodied, was the coming up from the water answered by a coming down from heaven. Truly, Jesus is the ladder to heaven that we have been waiting for. The peace of heaven comes down to him and takes away the wrath of God. The descent of the Spirit as a dove indicates that Jesus is the unique representative of the renewed Israel created through the Spirit. The verb to tear open is an echo of Isaiah 64.1, where the prophet calls upon God to rend the heavens, tear the heavens open, and come down and rebuild a desolated kingdom. Isaiah 64, the whole chapter, is an anguished plea for God to forgive the sins of the people of Judah, secure its prosperity, and establish justice in the world. And God shows up to do it, but to do more. He is recreating the people of God. He is recreating the world. He is recreating every power structure, the culture, everything. He's remaking everything. He's not just restoring a single kingdom. He's recreating the entire world. At creation, the spirit fluttered over the chaotic waste that was the first creation, Genesis 1-2. Moses compared the glory 
glory cloud of God hovering over God's people in the wasteland to an eagle hovering over her young. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11. Moses used the same word to describe the eagle's flight that he used earlier to describe the spirit's activity over creation. Moses, by doing this, he's connecting these two events, the exodus and the creation, He's stating that, that Israelites, the Israelites, that God's leading them through the wilderness in that glorious fiery cloud. This was reminiscent of the creation of the world when the Spirit brought order and life from the wilderness of the primal world. Mark is making the same point. This recall to the wilderness, this baptism, this man who he's baptizing is the new beginning that we have been waiting for since Genesis 3.15 when Adam and Eve were given a promise that one, a mighty one, would come and destroy Satan. Jesus is the promised son who fulfills the hope of Noah's father. In Genesis 5, 28 through 29, Lamech, it says, fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. All of Israel is looking to the heavens. They're looking to the heavens. Where is the promised one going to come? When? And he comes out of the ground. He comes, the son of man, made of dirt, just like us. Noah sent his dove out over the face of the deep to find new life, and it brought back him the first fruit of a new creation. Tertullian points out that after the flood, by which the iniquity of the old world was cleansed away, after, so to speak, the baptism of the world, the dove proclaimed to the earth the tempering of the wrath of heaven. So the new Noah receives his dove, a sign from heaven that God's wrath will be satiated, that the new creation will begin, and Jesus is the cornerstone to the structure that God will build. The one who will take the tidal wave of God's wrath over himself, leaving in the wake of his wrecked flesh a new world order. John's ministry meant that the old Israel had failed and needed a rebirth. In Jesus, this new life is born to all of mankind. The spirit hovering over him is the sign and the seal. It's the sign and the seal of Jesus' vocation as the greater Noah. He is the ark himself in which we are hidden. He is the one who brings the peace of heaven to all men. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, as an, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus has come to recreate the world by absorbing the flood of God's wrath over himself as the ark in which the children of God hide themselves. I thought this was just some nobody from Galilee <laughs> taking a bath in the Jordan. That's what it looks like, but that's not what it really is. That's not what it really is. And so what does the Father in heaven think of all this? Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The affirmation, you are my son, comes from Psalm 2, verse 7. It, it comes from many places, but one specific place is Psalm 2, verse 7, <clears throat> which is an enthronement psalm. 
The coronation of a new king would have been an occasion on which this psalm would have been used. These words point to Jesus as the one through whom God's reign would be established forever. Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king. The voice from heaven announces at Jesus' baptism that he is God's son, just as the same voice told his father, David, in 2 Samuel 7.14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This nobody turns out is, it, it's somebody. It's somebody. Galatians 3.26-29. If you, if you have a Bible, turn there with me for a moment. 26 through 29, Galatians chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, as many of you, as many people as you can fit into the water... For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Well, wait, I thought the heirs of the promise were all those people living in Judea and Jerusalem. With their long lineages. Look, I can go all the way back to the beginning. Right there with Papa Abraham. And what does Jesus say? I can make sons of Abraham out of rocks. But you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to make sons of God out of a bunch of nobodies. Out of all these bones walking around. We who are baptized into Christ have been pronounced as God's sons and daughters. We are kings with him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. Don't turn there, I'll just read it. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you were nobodies, But now you are God's people. You are all somebodies. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. (laughs) I think (laughs) one of my favorite scenes is not one people usually remember from the movie The Jerk. But he comes out on the porch and there's this phone book and he looks himself up and he loses his mind. I'm somebody. They only put somebodies in the phone book. And he's totally freaking out. I'm a somebody. He goes down the road, he's screaming. I'm a somebody. I'm here in the phone book. And after becoming a Christian, I think, you know, that if I could find the book of life, that's how I, I hope I would react. I, I'm a somebody now because I'm in this book. <laughs> Steve Martin, he never gets old. Our baptism is a call to a royal office. It's a new creation. You were a nobody. And now he has written you, right? Now we come to see that we're written in the book of life and we see that we're actually somebodies. Jesus walked into the waters of baptism in obedience to the Father's will. He had consecrated himself in faith. But in this instance, God came down. And there was striking confirmation that the sonship has been reestablished through the one true Israelite 
whose repentance was absolutely perfect. Before Jesus had done anything, before he had accomplished anything, the Father proclaims his love for him. This is not works righteousness. Jesus didn't earn anything. Jesus is the Father's beloved Son. In Genesis 22:2, God told Abraham to take his only son, the beloved son, to Mount Moriah to offer as a sacrifice. God is calling Jesus his Isaac, the son of promise, the sacrifice. Now, on various occasions in the Old Testament, other people are referred to as those whom God loved. David is identified as the king who God loves forever, and the nation of Israel is called God's beloved. And we see here that those are types and shadows. In texts like everything that we've been mentioning here, we find a cluster of themes related to love and covenant, faithfulness, promise, and restoration. And these are the themes interwoven throughout the story of Isaac and Abraham on Mount Moriah. The designation of Jesus as God's beloved evokes all of these themes. As soon as he says, this is my son, in the minds of the Israelites, there's an explosion of connections. It affirms that God would be faithful to him and Jesus would have something essential to do with God's covenant renewal. Who is this guy? What is he going to do? He's on the edge of the land with a dude wearing a camel shirt. How is he going to get rid of Rome? How is he going to deliver us? In this case, something even more amazing transpires. For the words, with you, I am well pleased, have very precise application. This gives us a context for what this guy is going to do. They refer initially not to any servant of God, but to the suffering servant portrayed in Isaiah 40 through 55, the chapters 40 through 55. According to Isaiah 43.10, the suffering servant is none other than the nation of Israel. And yet in Mark 1.11, however, the suffering servant is not the nation of Israel. It's Jesus, the true Israel, the true son of God. The application of this language to Jesus means that God has designated him as the one who would fulfill the role that uh, had first been given over to Israel in which they failed utterly. Mark does not at this point spell out what sort of relationship he sees between all these verses that he's echoing here. He doesn't sit down and say, okay, here's what Psalm 2-7, Genesis 22-2, and Isaiah 42-1 all have to, to do with one another. Let me make this very clear. He's giving you this information, and he, who is he? He wants you to tell him how this is all connected. Beloved son, sacrifice, the suffering servant, these themes relate to each other, will be developed, how these themes relate to one another, will be developed as the story unfolds, as we go from here. It is enough for now to observe that these are the opening themes of Mark's gospel. Stay alert to them. Stay alert to these themes. As the the stories, they will reappear And I want you guys all to note the prominence of Isaiah in the development of Mark's theology. If you want some idea of where we're going in this book, go and read Isaiah chapter 40 through 55. Mark is stating that the coming of Jesus is the coming of God's kingdom on earth. And what do we see? God's kingdom is coming, he says. And we see the heavens opened. Not like some door ajar miles above the earth. You're like squinting into space. Is that a hatchway? Like an escape hatch? Is Jesus going to escape now? Is that what he's doing? Crawl up there? No, the heavens immediately, immediately upon this obedient act of his son, the heavens are opened wide. As if a curtain were swept back in heaven, the kingdom of God were revealed as it really is. 
near to us all. Near to us all. We think it's some place on the other side of the galaxy we've got to take a spaceship to get to. But I mean, the joke there is if Christ had ascended and it really was on the other side of the galaxy, I think he would have just passed Mars, right? If he was going at the rate of speed in Acts, right? Just imagine flying through space still. He's going to make it. He's getting the other side of the Milky Way. That's not how, right? That's not heaven. Heaven is right right there. It, it's behind everything that you're looking at now, right? Christ is at hand. God is at hand. He is, he is here in this world. Can't, there's just a veil between the two things. And Jesus comes, and in, at his baptism, you see it open up. Now, what does this all mean for us? What, what does all of this have to do with you sitting there? One of the things that Mark is saying to us in the way that he has written this gospel is look at this story. Look at it. Open your eyes and look at it. Look at this life. And learn to see and to hear the heavenly vision, the heavenly voice, to see how near God truly is to you. Listen and learn. Learn to hear these words addressed to yourself. Let them change you. Let them mold you. Make you somebody new. The person that God wants you to be. It's not apart from him, but near him. Well, how close is that? It's, it's very near. It couldn't get any nearer. Discover in this story the heavenly dimension of God's world behind everything. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point. That when the living God looks at us, every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus. He sees us, not as we are in ourselves, but who we are in Jesus Christ. The Son of God became a nobody so that a bunch of nobodies become, become the Son of God. That's the transaction. In any early Christian reading this passage, any early Christian reading this passage would believe that their own baptism into Jesus the Messiah was the moment when, for them, the curtain had been drawn back and these words had been spoken to them. I, I, this, is, this changes everything. God the Father looks at me and says, this is my beloved son. This is the person in whom I am well pleased because we are in Jesus. Now, I know that we don't live thinking that way, do we? When we rise up in the morning, we don't think, I am his son. I am his daughter. And he is pleased with me. He loves me. We don't start the day that way. God looks at you and he says, you, you are my beloved child. John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. J.C. Ryle wrote that there is a mine of comfort in these words. For all of Christ's believing members, in themselves and in their own doings, they do nothing to please God. Nothing. They are daily sensible of weakness and shortcoming and imperfection in all of their ways. But let them recollect that the Father regards them as members of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He sees no spot in them. He beholds them as in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, invested with his merit. They are accepted in the Beloved. And when the holy eye of God looks at them, he is well pleased. Preach it, J.C. Ryle. Preach it, brother. Stick that on your fridge. 
The Spirit who anointed Jesus by coming upon him in the Jordan River will fulfill that task through him. The Spirit who anointed Jesus by coming upon him in the Jordan River will fulfill that task through him by raising Jesus from the dead, eventually raising all of us from the dead. How does he do this? How does he show Without a doubt, how does he accomplish this? Because the same spirit that descended upon him to empower him to go out and to fulfill his mission is the same spirit that raised him from the dead and that will raise you from the dead. Well, how do I? Because he's already with you. The spirit of God is already with you. And do you think he's going to leave you there in the ground? True life comes through the spirit. For you, for your home, for this church, for the Pacific Northwest, baptism is a sign and seal of our royal sonship, partly because it anticipates what will be bestowed upon us in the resurrection. Jesus is recreating humanity, ladies and gentlemen. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life of a new world order. Jesus is the means, the telos, and the substance of life, eternal life. This echoes forward and backward through everything that we've already learned. Get rid, get everything out of the way that prevents you from having the fullness of this God. And if this is the God that John was preparing us for, so much compassion and mercy, this is a whole new revelation. This is unlike anything anyone has ever even heard of. Even the people, you can know the Old Testament as much as you want at this point, when, when Jesus goes down in that water and comes out of it, this is something un, unbelievable beyond anything that anyone could have ever imagined. God becomes a no one from Galilee and he comes into the water of baptism aligning himself with a bunch of sinners because he wants to make them the children of the living God. He doesn't want to throw Rome down. He wants to lift all the rest of the people up. This nobody, by the world's standards, turns out to be the one our hearts yearn for. The one who restores peace between heaven and earth by uniting them in himself. Since we were cast out of Eden by our Father, every human heart yearns to hear our Father say, I love you. With you, I am well pleased. And the answer to all of our Father hunger is Jesus We are baptized into him, hidden in him, so that the Father looks at us, looks at this nobody, this nobody here, and he sees the true Israel, the beloved son, the king, the heir of all things. Jesus did not become the son of God. At his baptism or the transfiguration, he isn't becoming anything. He's revealing. He comes to reveal heaven. He comes to reveal the children of God. Jesus did not become the Son of God. He made a way for all of us to become the sons of God. The high point of revelation in the prologue to Mark's gospel is that Jesus is the anointed Son of God who tears heaven open and releases its life and its power to the whole world. Jesus associates himself with sinners and places himself in the ranks of the guilty, not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt and a flight from the wrath of God, but because he is the Son of God and the bearer of divine mercy. Jesus associates with us to remake us. Now, I'm going to close with this. What was read for us this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, dead, gone, buried. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is appealing to the world through you. Stop acting like you come from Judea and Jerusalem. You are Galileans. You are a bunch of nobodies. All of you, my own wife and kids included, (laughs) we're all nobodies. I don't care where you buy your clothes from. I don't care what neighborhood your house is in. You were a wretch, remade by Jesus into a royal priest. There is nothing good about you except Jesus. You were a fool. You were as far from heaven as the east is from the west, and Jesus brought you safely through the flood of God's wrath into his kingdom at his right hand forever. The world is full of wretches and no goods and fools, and they need to know that the only hope for them isn't middle-class respectability. It isn't the religion of Christianity. They need to know that the church is the place for outcasts, for people who can do nothing and have nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Stop acting like you have something and are something apart from him because you're lying to the world. You're lying to yourselves. You're lying to me. You're lying to your wife. You're lying to your husband. You're lying to your kids. You are nothing and have nothing apart from him. And the church that gets behind that is going to do something in this world. The church that acts like it's from Judea and Jerusalem will do nothing. It's as cold as a polar bear's hind parts. This is who you are. Jesus remakes. He makes drunks sober. He makes whores into wives. He makes the filthy clean. Jesus makes wimps into men. Jesus makes losers into kings and queens, liars into servants of the truth. Jesus makes fools wise and the broken whole. You know it. You know it. How? Jesus. That's the message, Jesus. He became, he's the son of God who became a nobody to make nobodies the sons of God. Right? And you should know because you're a bunch of nobodies without him. (laughs) Amen. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your compassion and your mercy. We know that you're a God who stoops and we know how far you stooped to be near to us. And we pray, Father, in our own lives, in the lives of our homes, in the lives of this church, in the lives of the the life of Pacific Northwest, that you would again, just like on the day Christ was baptized, rend heaven and pour your spirit, your peace, your goodness, your compassion down on us, our homes, this church, and the world. Amen.